Well, hello and welcome to Finding Our Way, our Southridge Church member podcast designed to give people the inside scoop on life in our church. Here's our host and lead pastor, Jeff Lockyer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. Uh, Really excited today to have uh, a good friend and fellow GTA Ontario, Canada resident, Danielle Strickland with us. Danielle, say hi to everybody. Hey, everybody. Are you still feeling trapped and contained in Ontario these days? Or have you been able now, as we've been progressively reopening, to, to move about a little bit? Well, you know, the lifting of the quarantine uh, for double-vaxxed folks across the border has kind of liberated me a fair bit. So I'm just returning back from a trip uh, to America and uh, coming home without having to stay sequestered for 14 days. Nice. That that Arrive Can app is something else, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we just used that recently as well. We were moving a kid into college and uh, visited the States. So first time out of the country. Hey, uh, before we really, really dive in, what have you been up to these days? How's the, how are things going in your world, pandemic life, all that? Yeah, they're going great, actually. I, um, you know, started, I did a couple things uh, while the pandemic was going on. I just submitted a new manuscript for a new book called The Other Side of Hope and, uh, and uh, started a nonprofit called IMBI, which is uh, in my backyard, which is building tiny houses in people's backyards around uh, Ontario for now. And, um, you know, just enjoying family, uh, having a really good time. My, my son completed his first year of university from my basement. So that's exciting. <laughs> Isn't that uh, something doing college from home? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's his dream life. Actually. He like, <laughs> <laughs> he's an introvert. So I spent my whole life sort of going like, you can't really do this. Like you have to get social. And then this year he said to me, it turns out I can't. <laughs> what so. a life. Hey, other than, uh, conquering the world in your spare time instead of binging on Netflix. Uh, what, what would you say kind of were your greatest like learnings or even challenges during the pandemic for you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I did my fair share of binging on network, uh, Netflix just for the record, but I, I think for me, one of the takeaways was that you really will never get to your priorities unless you prioritize them, even when you have all the time in the world. Hmm. Uh, or it feels like it. So for me, the struggle was still real to find the time to pray, to find the time to serve, to find the time to be really present with people that I love. Um, so I think I thought magically when the travel stopped and I was stuck in one place, those things would just happen. And I learned that actually those things will never happen unless I learn how to prioritize them and then make them happen. It It, it is interesting. Like assuming that your world just kind of came to a screeching halt as did mine and all the taxiing and everything uh, was allowing this uh, almost forced season of simplicity uh, that didn't automatically translate into greater experiences of spirituality did it no although one of my other takeaways was what it translated to for me right away was relief um which I think is a really interesting thing to pay attention to in my own life in terms of pace. Um, and that's my tendency, you know, to my pace is always a little too fast. Um, so that kind of sense of relief with it all coming, screeching to a halt. I know a lot of my other friends who do a lot of things that I do were sort of terrified and I was just like, yay. Hmm. 
So I thought that was really interesting. I thought I would miss um, some of the uh, stages. I I thought I would miss the sort of speaking stage stuff. And I I didn't miss it at all, actually. Um, So I thought that was really fascinating, too. And then I think you're right. I think we all, um, those of us who are um, inclined towards spirituality, I think I just thought, oh, this would be a great monastic year for me to just cultivate a really strong prayer life. (laughs) And, And that's not what naturally happened. Um, so I had to pay a lot closer attention to my own practices at home. Hmm. That I'm sure is an encouragement to all of us listening and wondering whether we just wasted a year and a half, you know, not being as disciplined as maybe we, we should have, um, you know, just because, just because you've got the space doesn't mean you're actually engaging in the practices that experience the presence of God. So that's uh, that's a good reminder. Danielle, you, you, have always had your finger on the pulse of kind of the church at large and with a bit of a more global perspective, even beyond Canada, kind of at the, what I would hope is more the tail end of this, what are you feeling like or sensing that God's up to these days? Well, I mean, I think what God is up to is moving the church out of the building, um, kind of uh, taking away and dismantling some of the systems and structures that we thought were essential um, that are not. And I don't even just mean like um, closing down the churches and opening up uh, online avenues. I mean, you know, literally neighborliness and serving the people in our own communities and uh, being friends and disciples first and spectators and sort of part of a system last. Um, I think uh, it's been a dismantling. So for me, like Acts 27 has been Acts 27, 28, which is Paul's final journey. And he's on a ship and the ship is not going where he wants it to go. (laughs) And it's almost comical. Actually, it starts falling apart and it's being driven and it's called a Northeaster, the wind and a Northeaster. If you're from Eastern Canada, you might know this, but it's actually like a wind that makes circles so the boat is literally going in circles in the storm. And I just thought, wow, does that ever feel like what we're all going through? <laughs> and um, and then in the middle of that, Paul has a vision, an angel of God. And he, he says this, God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve. And I thought that's such a great realignment. Like, I think a lot of us within the church space you know, have slipped into serving systems or structures or churches or denominations. And actually, I think there's like a realignment of our allegiances to Jesus first. I I see the Beatitudes everywhere, which is beautiful. I see Jesus-centered language emerging. I kind of see the shedding of the ship. And uh, the message that Paul gets from God is also fascinating. He says to the people in the ship in Acts 27, you're all going to be fine, um, but the ship's not going to make it. And I think like, as I read it, I just was like, whoa, you know, this isn't just like, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to go back to normal. Like there is an undoing, there's a deconstruction of things that are not serving the gospel well. And I think sometimes they're serving us well, those who belong, but they're not serving the needs of the world very well. And so I think God's just like, let me help you get those out of the way. Um, So in our kind of terrified state, you know, what the angel of God says to Paul, I think is really helpful for us to reimagine as leaders. One is that God cares for people over everything else. 
and that his will is that everyone would be saved. You know, that that's like, that's number one for him. Uh, and number two, he's, he's not in the ship saving business. You know, that's not his business. Um, he's in the people saving business. And then the other thing that the angel says, which God just keeps saying over and over, I feel like a broken record with this, but I say it not just to people listening, but to me as well. It's just, don't be afraid. And I think whenever we're motivated by fear, I mean, we're just in trouble. You know, we're in trouble. Um, we're stuck in anxiety. We're stuck in depression. We're stuck in our self-focused living. We're stuck def- being defensive instead of engaging with the world. So those are kind of, those are the big things Scott's been teaching me. And I think speaking to the church. When uh, when you say he's in the people saving business, not the ship saving business, what, what does that make you feel about how the church is doing these days? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes our because we are afraid sometimes, our fear is to be defensive and to hang on to what serves us. Um, So whether that's tradition or theology or practice, we make these decisions that are based on what's best for us instead of what will help and serve and save others. So again, you know, this is this, this real, um, you know, it's such a tendency, a human tendency. It's not meant to be judgmental to the church, but I hear a lot of people asking what I would consider other wrong questions for the church to ask. And they're all rooted around this, like, how can we save the church? You know, how can we, you know, uh, serve our people? And I always think to myself, like, the church exists to serve others, right? The church exists to save others, to get the gospel out. That's the, the whole impetus of the church. So I feel like we need to actually start asking different questions. And uh, what those questions will lead us to is letting go of some of the things that used to serve us. It's interesting the way that you're talking, because I know so much of your ministry and even your life history around compassion and justice has tried to encourage the Jesus way of relinquishing privilege and relinquishing privilege for particularly those of less privilege, rather than a serve ourselves kind of approach is what you're, you're talking about. Why do you believe that that's so critical to this journey of faith and so dear to the heart of God? Why, why is all of this, it's not about me, I guess is, is a way that a, a lot of people frame it. Why is that so important to a life of faith? Yeah, I think, um, Jeff, I'd probably use the word leverage your privilege for others rather than relinquish it, although relinquishing it sometimes is involved. Uh, I just read a great book called Subversive Witness by Dominic uh, Gerard, if anyone wants to have a read. It's a fantastic biblical study on how leveraging your privilege is part of the calling of the church. And um, basically, it's so central because it's the way of Jesus. You know, it's literally what Jesus did was he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't trying to hang on for himself. And, you know, recently I had a conversation with Daryl Johnson on my podcast about uh, passages of scripture that kind of blew his mind. And he's a theologian from Regent College. And uh, he, he quoted that from Philippians. You know, he said, for my whole life, I thought it said, although Jesus was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he said, as I studied the original text, I realized it said, because Jesus was God, 
he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so he said it kind of, it blew his mind because he realized like, we've always had this concept of Jesus in this eternal struggle of like, should I let go? Should I go to earth? Should I become a, you know, this like eternal struggle of relinquishing his privilege. But actually it's because he's God that this is what God is like, you know, self-giving love. This is what God is like, like Jesus, literally, if you want to just have like a one sentence of what Jesus did with his life, he gave people power, <laughs> including us, even to this day, right? He gives us power. He's a higher power. He's a power that we need to do what it is we need to do. He's filling us with the power of his spirit. He's inviting us into the power of the Trinity, right? To participate with him in co-creation. I mean, so this is, and Jesus specifically goes out of his way to find people without power in his social structures and systems. And then the church, the early church does this as well. And this is when the church is at its best, it's a church that is leveraging its power for those who don't have any, because that's counter to the world. It's literally the opposite direction of where the world's going. Uh, which is to try to hoard as much power as it possibly can. And these days, what would some of the kind of main or the highest points uh, from your observation be of, of ways in which at least the Western church needs to leverage that privilege or kind of give up, offer some of its power to empower those who lack power? Yeah. I mean, it's almost endless, uh, Jeff, really, it's almost endless this way, but I think of like the refugee crisis right now, um, you know, and the amount of, I mean, how many church buildings or properties exist across Canada that could be repurposed right now to take in desperate people from around the world to say, you're welcome here and we can help you. You know, I mean, like every church should at least be sponsoring one or two or three or four or five refugee families from around the world, because I believe this is the greatest opportunity we've ever seen in the entire world to reach unreached people with the news of uh, inclusive welcome and the love of God. And yet again, um, those conversations will be mostly characterized by fear and protectionism and privilege. There are probably the best hope of the Canadian church to advance in the next few years is through immigration, you know, or, or people coming from developing world countries with a vibrant faith and uh, they have nowhere to worship. And we have churches that are sitting empty or half full or wondering how they're going to pay the bills. When were those churches realized that leveraging the power that they do have in terms of place, right? They have a building, they have capacity, they have privilege in their community. What if we gave some of that to the a new church that's emerging in Canada? What could that look like in terms of revitalizing our faith and demonstrating to the world what it looks like to live as people of God? Uh, this MB project I'm doing right now is literally leveraging the space in your backyard to make a tiny house to say, hey, we have more room than we ever thought right in the middle of cities. Uh, we have tons of space that could be affordable housing, but also offer belonging and welcome to people who are different than us. So I think it's endless. Um, I think the conversation about the First Nations people, uh, I think we have to figure out how we demonstrate what repentance looks like right now, beyond just we're sorry for what happened in the past. I think we need to, um, I think we have an opportunity to demonstrate what true repentance looks like, which means we're going to do things differently. I know that one of the biggest ways that you've challenged the church in recent years to leverage its privilege is in regards to kind of slaying the dragon of patriarchy. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit? I know this is dear to your heart. You've written a recent book on this. Why is it so critical for the church to face this issue of men and women being better together? Yeah, so that that's the latest book I wrote called Better Together. And, um, you know, men and women and the way we treat each other and live together is kind of the ground zero of this conversation around power. <laughs> So it affects everything, like from marriage relationships to how children, uh, you know, work it out at school, to how our culture treats one another, to how businesses operate, to how churches leaders lead. So misogyny, which is this like, you know, worse, it is, is rooted out of patriarchy, which is this hierarchical idea of power. Uh, it's rooted in the idea that God designed uh you know, men to be above women and women to be subordinate to men. It's rooted also in this idea of God, that God is hierarchical and uh, which really is heretical in um, according to the, you know, the main Christian doctrine across the centuries. Um, so I would say that the way that we treat each other at the core, and you can't escape men and women, you know, in every single family and every single relationship has this dynamic, which is why women remain one of the most marginalized and oppressed people groups across all cultures. So this is fascinating because it's what I call the ground zero of power. So for us to model this differently and for us to address this ground zero place is one of the ways that we learn how to exercise and to use our power for mutual thriving instead of for lording over or for hierarchy. I would suggest that patriarchy entered into the world as a direct result of sin. So one of my, you know, I guess one of the things I would try to say is that if you want to model sin to the world, by all means, go ahead with patriarchy. Um, Cause that's what sin looks like. That's what it does. It divides and it conquers and it lords over but if you want to model God to the world, Genesis 1, you want to model Shalom or Edom, you want to model the Trinity of this shared mutuality, then, then model egalitarianism, model uh, equity, you know, model this mutual thriving, model celebrating difference with one another and, and exercising strengths together. Um, that's what the world's desperate to see. They already know all about hierarchy and patriarchy and racism and how people are divided against one another and people are afraid of difference. But what we have as the people of God is the answer. It's a remedy to that, you know? And so it, it, I think it irks me when people don't realize that, you know, we'll often say like, how can we make the gospel relevant? And what we mean by that is like our language or what we mean by that is a poster campaign or something like that. And I'm like, how you make the gospel relevant is you model God to the world. You know, you model this radical mutual celebration of difference, which is spelled out for us in the scriptures. And I think the world's so hungry for that and we have it. And uh, so I get a little passionate about this because I'm like, people, stop modeling sin and brokenness to the world. We have a remedy. Yeah, that's what cultural relevance means. Yes, it's a demonstration of the world. Yeah, right. Demonstrate the gospel. Don't just proclaim it. You know, demonstrate it by the way you live and treat one another, by your relationships, by the way that you steward what it is that you have, by the way you exercise your power. I mean, it's all this opportunity to demonstrate what God is like. At a practical level, for those of us both at Southridge and beyond, leaders from other churches who are who are listening into this conversation outside of revisiting theology 
that might hold churches and leaders and communities back from embracing egalitarianism. What do you feel like the church and, and the people, especially the leaders in it, need to do most in order to better empower women and, and female leaders? Yeah, I mean, I use a little thing from Amplify Peace, which is a movement I have called Listen, Learn, Live. And uh, the listen is listen to voices you don't normally hear. Um, so I would say if you don't have a diverse representation from your community in your leadership team, then you need to start listening to the people who should be there about why they're not there. I'd say that's number one. And Jeff, I use your church as an example of this in my book <laughs> about how you were like, we believe this is a good idea, but we're not doing it. So like, where are the women and why is this happening? And that's step number one. And that's, uh, you know, that's a step that you take when you're no longer afraid. Uh, when you really need to get to number two, which is learn, 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 learn different ways, different thinking, different churches that are seeing just sort of the beauty of this uh, and then live differently as a result. And then what I would say is that that's actually how you make the peace wherever you are in whatever issue you have is just listen to the voices you don't normally hear, learn how to do things differently and then live accordingly. And then just repeat that process over and over again in a deeper and deeper way. Uh, which is really what I've just been doing uh, with my life. A couple of resources I've recently uh, read that have been released. One is called Jesus and John Wayne, which is a little bit more around the evangelical right that was established in America and misogyny uh, sort of inbuilt within that. It's a fantastic eye-opening think again, uh, listen and learn resource. And I also just listened to uh, the making of biblical womanhood which is by a complementarian historian who uh, changes her mind. And that book is, I mean, just well-researched and fascinating. And again, just even if you don't agree uh, to listen to the voice that we have not heard from those spaces is absolutely paramount to changing anything about our world. Listen, learn, and live. It sounds simple when you describe it. Yeah. Yeah, We're hard. I mean, it's hard for people to listen in general in our culture, but also I think to listen to voices you don't normally hear is so counterintuitive. And that has to be a real intentional practice because even your, you know, the way that you consume social media or the news is an algorithm based on what you want. Even the way we shop right now, you know, Amazon suggests to me all the things I want to buy based on what I've purchased before. So to actually find voices that are different and outside that are what we would call marginalized voices, which are not heard in dominant culture or mainstream or in our own, you know, sort of uh, settings is it actually takes quite a lot of intentional work. You mentioned in your recent book, Better Together, that you you did include a, a piece about Southridge in our journey here. For those of us specifically at Southridge that are listening in, what was it that it inspired you about our ministry of female empowerment and some of the initiatives that we've been up to? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, first of all, Ellen uh, Duffield is a genius in this area and wrote a book called Brave Woman, which is based on like nine or 10 years of research that she's done just on this subject alone. So you called in Ellen, who's like an expert, which I think is just number one, what a good idea. Like (laughs) you identified the problem and then you got really intentional about asking the questions about why this problem existed. Because when your belief doesn't match with your practice, 
that's a dissonance that you either can ignore out of fear or laziness, or you can address out of a desire to actually bring those things together. So what I love about what your church did is you recognize the dissonance. We have this belief that women should be empowered, but they're not in our own uh, sphere of influence. So we can't challenge this outside of us until we fix this inside of us. And I love your intentionality about it. I love that you called in Ellen. I love that you listened to women. And then I love, uh, Jeff, the way that you describe what you did where you talk about the disproportionate effort and resources that you put towards this. And sometimes people don't understand this because I think in general, people have a sense that women are now empowered in Canada. And I think actually a lot of men I talk to actually feel a bit defensive about this because they're like, I'm overlooked because I'm a man now instead of a woman or whatever this is. But in my book, I, I, I try to help the break down the idea between equality, which is this general idea that you are free to do something with equity, which is the actual access to do it. And uh, women still lack equity, definitely in the church in terms of the actual power to do something. And this happens from the time they're, you know, little girls. Uh, Ellen Duffield's research suggests that, you know, girls think the most highly about themselves when they're at age nine. And after that, it's just like a relentless cultural assault on their self-esteem and their capacity. So I think to really, to have this disproportionate investment to say that this wrong needs to be made right. And unless you're willing to have that disproportion, unless you're willing to go to the, that extreme, I think sometimes those things don't just work themselves out. Um, they settle according to the lines that we've already drawn. Some of the some of the disproportionate investments we've been able to leverage have been investments that you and ministries that you run uh, are making in women and especially in in female leaders. So knowing that you're a champion for female empowerment, can you talk about some of these ministry aspects in your world and and how someone, whether from Southridge or a church leader listening in, how how someone could uh, kind of track with or, or sign up for one of these initiatives? Yeah, so we have a, a couple of things. One is a Women's Speaker Collective. And the Women's Speaker Collective really was um, something that happened out of frustration for me, where I kept seeing that I was the exception to the rule when it came to speaking on public platforms that were mixed company especially leadership, church leadership, any kind of, you know, uh, stuff. Anyway, it was often a very, a minority of women. And I was often uh, the only one. And I would ask the conference organizers, like, where are the women? And they would say, number one, we don't know, which is, you know, its own problem. And number two, when we ask them, they say no. And so I just started to do some research on where, you know, the training was and the capacity was for women and started to offer these boot camps which are experiences for women to cultivate and learn to use their voices and learn to, to, uh, to be speakers. And that's really, really opened up my eyes to a lot of realities that face women in churches all across the world. So we've run these all over the place, but a lot of women will come and share their story about how like their fathers or their pastors or their seminary professors have told them their whole life that they're not allowed to use their voice, you know? And, uh, and so then you wonder, you know, when they ask uh, for women speakers and women speakers are like, no, um, you wonder why, well, why is because there's a systemic problem within the church that's taught women that silence is what they, they should be uh, aspiring to. 
And then you start to hear the struggle. So we try to create a collective community. So uh, once a month, you could join the global collective, or if you have women that you know that just need a supportive community, we started an online one called the Women Speaker Global Collective. And that has women all over the world. It's a monthly coaching platform, uh, or we have some online coaching platforms available, or we have these in-person boot camps when we're allowed to gather again. And uh, all of them are designed to help equip and empower women to use their voices uh, for the for the good of the world, you know, for the, the good of the gospel. Yeah, for those listening, we've we've had uh, about a half dozen of our female leaders around Southridge participate in that boot camp, and uh, even in that short experience, it was really catalytic uh, in some of their worlds. Uh, not just for the confidence building and the collective affirmation, but for the like hard skill development. There's a huge piece of that that you that you help provide for up and coming speakers to to leverage their voice as well, and I've massively, massively appreciated that. Um, Danielle, we're we're almost running out of time. I'm just wondering, like, what's next for you? Knowing you're in the process of of uh, producing another manuscript, getting something out there again, and you know what your kind of final encouragements or challenges would be, both to Southridge listeners and to those of us across the country and beyond. Um, you know, when it comes maybe specifically to empowering women and female leaders, or in general, to the church and to followers of Jesus, leveraging their privilege and power for those that don't have any. Yeah, I guess my my final thoughts of encouragement is um, are really positive. Like there's never been a better time for the church to be uh, the model of what true reconciliation looks like, you know, and that's Paul's term where he calls us the ministers of reconciliation what does that look like in our context? How can we be the ministers of reconciliation? This is what the church is called to be, reconciling people to God for sure, but also reconciling people to one another and reconciling people even to the world and the earth and engaging people through lenses of curiosity instead of judgment. And uh, particularly the Canadian church, I just, I want to say to church leaders everywhere, you know, I did have this vision when the churches were burning down, you know, where people were burning down churches, which, you know, it should be an alarming um, thing for us. And I think we are alarmed by it, but instead of being defensive about it, I actually wondered if all those sites, the church could actually make public places of mourning where we just said, yes, like we resonate with this thing inside of you that wants to burn the whole thing down because we get it. Like there's so much pain here and there's so much brokenness, not just in the structures and the systems, but in the relationships. And if we could prioritize relationship, if we could prioritize, you know, sort of a radical curiosity about engaging the culture with where they're at, where the pain points are and where the gospel speaks to their pain, I think we could see um, something beautiful happen, like genuine reconciliation where people can touch the spirit of God, uh, in their everyday life and in the pain points in their life. So I would just say to church leaders, like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Um, step into this ministry of reconciliation, see this, step into this lament and mourning season, even within Canada, and then let it drive you, uh, to a love and a leveraging of your power for others. This could be the greatest, you know, incarnation of Jesus that we've ever seen in Canada. I can't even imagine actually the limits of that. I think it's limitlessness uh, in terms of how the gospel could be demonstrated in our lifetime. So 
I, I really pray for the church that we wouldn't be afraid and that we wouldn't be self-focused, that we'd be willing to give ourselves away. Um, for a long, long time, the last couple of years, I've gotten this Samson, um, the Samson image, you know, at the very last scene of Samson's life, he, uh, he's blinded and he's compromised and he's bound by the enemy. And he's been this incredible, glorious strength guy, right? From like just all these crazy strength-filled pursuits. And uh, he prays this last prayer at the very end of his life. And he, he finds the pillars of this temple and he's being mocked by his enemy. And he just says to God, like, one more time. But this time, Samson's willing to give his life. And when Samson gives his life in this final sort of act, the scripture says this, he took more of the enemy out in that one final act than in all of his previous acts put together. And I wondered, you know, sort of modeling this cruciform, self-giving love of Jesus, what it would look like for the church in Canada to give itself away and that it would feel like death but I think we would take out more of the enemy <laughs> than in all of our previous exploits put together. And that's kind of what I'm praying in my own life, but also I'm praying for the church that we would learn what this cruciform love looks like in our current culture and, uh, and not be afraid. Oh, Danielle, I could keep asking you questions forever, but we got to wrap things up. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us some time and for sharing your heart and voice uh, with us here locally and, and beyond across our country. We so appreciate you and are grateful for the friend that you are to Southridge and the friend that you are to the church in Canada and beyond. Just so, so appreciate you. Thank you uh, as well to all of you who are listening in. And uh, we'll see you again next week as we continue tracking along and finding our way together. Take care, everybody. Bye.